And take your Bibles and turn to Second Peter, Second Peter, and chapter one, and we're going to read verses five through seven for a text. Second Peter, chapter one, and verses five through seven for our text. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. I'm going to read the next verse just because I like it. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now shall we pray. Father, I pray that you'd make this word that is your word clear, understandable to everyone that is gathered here today in Jesus Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. This morning I did something just a little bit different. Um, Usually, for an example, every Wednesday night message right now, every Sunday school lesson I have was prepared through the end of September, easily through the end of September on the Sunday school lessons. Um, this sermon was prepared several, uh, several weeks ago, it's hard to say several years ago, several weeks ago, and this morning I got up and had my devotions and then was driving in and listened to our radio stations, drove in, the Lord just seemed to start giving me some things, and so when I got here, I said, well, I'm going to type this and use it down the road, and Started to go over my message this morning, realized the Lord wanted me to use it now. And so what I'm doing this morning is kind of, for the introduction I had, I'm going to change my introduction I had. And I'm telling you, you say, well, why are you telling us that? Because I'm going to read it, okay? And for some reason, other people think preachers can't read or not supposed to read when they're preaching. So um, uh, I, I just wanted to warn you ahead of time. But I just felt led to change it. But Second Peter, this book of Second Peter begins by telling us of the salvation that we have in Christ. And what a great salvation it is. It's the same as the precious faith as uh, the Apostle Peter had. We're saved the same way as Peter. And he talks about the peace and the other things that we have as a result of that. Then he tells us in the text we read today how to be personally equipped for the attacks of the devil in these last days. However, that calls for personal responsibility. These things to add to our lives is he's telling us to add them. So there's a personal responsibility. The Lord took the personal responsibility for those first four verses in the saving of our soul. We could not save ourselves. He does. And so we come to him in repentance and faith and receive the salvation that is so freely given. But then he, he exhorts us and lets us know that the Holy Word of God is the authority, the standard, and the instructional book for victory in these last and dark days as you go through the rest of the first chapter. And they are evil and dark days. Permissiveness abounds. And when you see that, evil will preach one thing. Evil will preach tolerance until evil is dominant then it seeks to silence anything that is good or of God. That's the way it is. When we get to chapter 2, 
He will tell us about these last and evil days and, and uh, the things to watch out for, things that will be happening. And so what he's doing in chapter 1 is just kind of like a, an engineer putting something together to prepare for what's ahead. And as he puts that thing together, he said, okay, here's where you are. This is what you've got. This is what you have to work with. And this is how you can get, get the job done. And then he tells you what the job is in chapter 2. And it's a daunting thing. Now, it's interesting that in this day that we uh, have media, Hollywood, entertainment, and so-called higher education that makes moral life and ethics to be drab, unfashionable, and politically incorrect. Instead, whatever is debauched, demonic, depraved, loose, lax or licentious seems to be called normal, acceptable, and to be desired. Unfortunately, that is essentially destroying the home, the pure and holy faith of the Bible in so many churches that have gone from it, and the dignity of God, country, and marriage. It's also a bad thing that too many Christians have been silent and have allowed their children and grandchildren to be taken in without a fight. Two passages come in to my mind about this fight. First is in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13. Therefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. And by the way, we are in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand. Notice what he's saying. You take a stand and then be ready to withstand. Because if you stand for right, you're going to be attacked. Be ready to withstand. But don't quit. Don't ever quit. Don't ever quit. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. At my first answer, no man stood with me. But all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. In that passage, the apostle took a stand against Alexander the coppersmith for what he was trying to do to the church, to the word of God, and to all that was right. He took that stand. And when he did, and when he spoke up, these others that were supposed to be with him said nothing. They did nothing. They did not stand with me, he says. They forsook him. They went another direction. And he praised God, don't Allow that sin to be laid to their charge. But then he says something else that gives us hope. This is why you should stand. Even if you feel like no one else is standing with you, this is the reason you stand. He says, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and, and uh, strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Well, that might have been a physical lion that he was delivered from when they were going to throw some Christians to the lion. But I kind of have more of a thought that Satan walked about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And the question becomes, are we going to allow that roaring lion to devour our children and grandchildren with a false doctrine, with a false God, with a debauched moral system, and another Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible, but rather some hip, Jesus on drugs and drink. You see, there's a lack of boundaries today. 
And that causes a lack of disrespect, a lack of respect for that which is good and right. I carry my Bible, this little paper, I've carried it for years. And uh, every once in a while I make a new copy of it just to have it there in front of me. Just looking at it right now, I see I'm going to have to enlarge the print. But um, here are a couple men that I want to read to you about that were facing some serious things in their life. I mean, these were serious. They were going to die when they stood for Jesus Christ. They took a stand for Jesus Christ. The first one says, 80 and 6 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong, said Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, in A.D. 156. Before climbing unto the pyre where Roman authorities would burn him to death, eyewitnesses reported the local authorities respected Polycarp, and begged him to recant his faith in Christ. If he just recant his faith, they wouldn't burn him there. He would not. The Romans did not even tie Polycarp to a post because they knew he would not flee the fire. Polycarp fed his captors, prayed over them, then climbed the pyre to die. Authorities carted off Polycarp's friend, Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch. We've all read of the Church of Antioch in the Bible. They carted him off and fed him to wild beasts in the Circus Maximus in July 6, A.D. 108. Ignatius had refused to renounce Christ. Histories of the time, their personal writings, and the writings of others tell us Polycarp, and Ignatius were students of the Apostle John. They vouched that he was the author of the Gospel of John as well as the Revelation. John installed Polycarp as the Bishop of Smyrna. The Apostle Peter placed Ignatius in charge of Antioch. Those men sought God's will as who would take their place. And obviously those men did a great job in taking his place. One other quote here that I also keep in my Bible. I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. That was John Bunyan who was imprisoned for preaching and wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress. So, yes, we have a personal responsibility. There have been people that have walked down that road throughout history, as we've seen just in some of these things today. I think that we are there. We already find out in foreign countries that there has been, in the last hundred years, more deaths for the faith in Jesus Christ than there was in the previous 1900 years before that. And we don't see people being put to death in this country for their faith and standing up and witnessing for their faith. But now they're wanting us to uh, go to jail. They weren't preachers to go to jail. Matter of fact, Brother Mark, poor guy, he's got to mark down every time that we say something that 
is politically incorrect for the FCC. For an example, LGBTQXYZ, you know, the whole gamut. If we say anything about that, then that's got to be marked down. By the way, it's rotten, filthy, low down, unrighteous sin, but those souls can be saved. And if God saves them, he'll change them. Okay? God can save those souls, so we don't hate their souls, but we do hate the sin. We do hate the sin. And I will not apologize for telling you that. In chapter 2, we'll see what is coming to this world in these last days. And we have a personal responsibility. And that's what he's trying to do with this, these verses here, telling us what we need to be able to do to be able to not only stand, but to withstand the attacks of the devil in the days in which we live. Now, we need to heed this chapter then. Because it's going to be the difference in being ashamed or confident at his appearing. It's going to be the difference in having answer to prayer. If we're going to have the faith God wants us to have in these last days, these days that grow in darkness, then we're going to have to add these things to our lives. Because false prophets abound, but in addition to that, you see, even in America, God has been kicked out of the home. He's been kicked out of the church. He's been kicked out of the schools. Anything on the public fanfare. And they want to tell you as a parent who's the head of your home, you as a father that's the head of your home, you mothers, and especially those single parent mothers, and, and those in those situations trying to tell you that you can't make your children go to church. You know what they're telling you? Those aren't your children. They're just assigned to your house and you're going to pay for it, but they're ours. They're wards of the state. By the way, that is socialism. If you want to know what socialism is, that is it. Socialism is a pretty word for communism. Okay. And you say, well, are you getting political? No, not at all. The word of God, if you read it, you'll find out that God put the parents in charge of those children and he's going to hold them accountable. Okay, that's the way it is. Now, so we consider these seven indispensable uh, qualities of a godly Christian life that is holy and acceptable unto God. Again, we saw in one verse, verses 1 through 4 that what Jesus did for us, we couldn't do for ourselves. All we had to do was accept it by faith. But now we are to add to that faith. That is, we are to take personal responsibility. And we are to be diligent in doing it. The divine power of God. And that divine power that he has, he gives the saved, does not make us machines that turns a Christian into a robot, that he lives a holy and religious life and righteous life regardless of his own attitude and actions. No, he doesn't make you a robot. 
Salvation is of a free will, but living the Christian life is also of a free will. We're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. And we live the Christian life by the grace of God. It's not our design. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should obey the truth, uh, not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. What are you saying? You guys got saved. Your lives were changed. Now you're going back to the world. You're going back to these other things. Who has bewitched you? The divine nature received as salvation does produce a change in our life. In the life of a sinner who receives Christ as Savior, I was fully justified to go to heaven the moment I received Christ. He put the sanctification that would accept me in Jesus Christ. But let me tell you this. In our personal lives as Christians here on earth, we still have an old nature to go with that new nature that we have. And that, that, that old nature is battling against the new nature. And then we will lose that battle to the old nature because we have a free will to decide which one we're going to obey. And we'll lose that battle if we don't grow in sanctification, growing closer and in the knowledge of our God, in the knowledge of His holiness and righteousness, and allowing it to be our life. It works most efficiently when we submit and cooperate with God's will, God's Spirit, living in obedience to His Word. God has designed it. Now, just imagine you're getting ready to move. And so you get this great big tractor trailer, and, and you're going to move it. And, and so the, all the furniture gets loaded on, and they take off. Now, that tractor trailer can carry your furniture. It was built to carry your furniture. And there's a driver in there that has the skill to drive that truck to take your furniture from that place five states away and get it there safely. As long as you don't drive over roads in West Virginia. Um, but it's designed to get you there safely. But if somebody makes a mistake in hooking up the trailer to the tractor, your trailer with all that furniture is going to be turned over somewhere, going down the side of a mountain or side of a hill or something else. That's your furniture, but it's damaged. And you see, you're saved, and God has provided a way for you to live for him. But if you don't make these things right and add them to your life, you're going to be saved. So as by fire, and as 1 John 2.28 says, ashamed at his appearing. Now, we're to be diligent in doing this. But without diligence, a Christian does not grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you don't grow in His grace and knowledge, you will not grow in the holiness. You will not grow in His Word. You will just not grow at all. But you see, the problem is, is that lazy Christians 
lazy Christians do not grow spiritually. Uh, the word diligence is emphasizing an all-out effort that stresses no labor is too hard, no price is too high in the pursuit of God, the knowledge of Him, and a holy life. Do we agree with that? Because that's what the Bible teaches. Now, that doesn't mean, okay, all of us are now full-time pastors or evangelists. No, it doesn't mean that. It means you're a full-time Christian. You see, we need, we need policemen, we need firemen, we need manufacturers, we need uh, grocery stores, we need all of those things. We do. We need farmers. We need them all. But you see, when you're in one of those areas, you are a light for the Lord in that area. That's your call. And you're a full-time light. And God expects you to do your duty before Him. Now, in ministry, if you're in a full-time ministry, a lot of times the thing that defeats many young men, young ladies, older men, older ladies as well. So don't let me just go that far with it. Uh, let me go all the way with it and just say this. Laziness is the devil's favorite toy that he likes to tempt Christian workers. It really is. If idle, you don't do the work, you don't give it your best effort, you're not seeking, what else can I do for you, the Lord? You'll find that all of a sudden, as the body gets idle, the tongue gets in gear. And it manufactures much. Many times, it begins to editorialize what's wrong with everybody else's life. What they're doing in their work. And nine times, no, 99, no, 999 times out of a thousand, it's not their place. Now, if, if I have a problem, for example, with Brother Kevin, if I have a problem with Brother Kevin in his work and ministry, as pastor, I need to go to Brother Kevin. Okay? Now, Brother Jerry doesn't go to Brother Kevin about the ministry of the music, okay? Because Brother Jerry is dumb as I am about music, okay? So, uh, but no, because that's not his position. And many decide that they're going to attack fellow believers in their own local church, many times in their own family, because they're idle. So that's the thing they have to do, to find fault with what's ever going on. But for some reason, they don't appreciate it if things are going against them and they're finding fault with them. Now, I'm saying that because Jesus Christ said a house divided does not fall. Now, hopefully we don't have that problem here. Now, we've had problems like that before, but God always straightens it out if we let him. But a house divided falls. And as we these days grow evil, you can't be attacking brethren. You've got to be attacking the devil. That's what it comes down to. Attack the devil. A pastor, I was to a pastor one time, and he said, 
uh, a man called him up, he's a young preacher, and he said, uh, what, do you, what do you do? I mean, I prepare a sermon and, and get all that done, and it's still just Monday. I got the rest of the week. What do I do the rest of the week? He said, I just can't find anything to do. It's kind of boring being a pastor. He probably found for the next two or three hours what he needed to do. But you know what? I, I, I've told uh, no, Brother Josh tell you that. I've told youth pastors. I've told others. Look, you don't have anything to do. Get out there and knock on doors. You don't have anything to do? Uh, study in the Word. Get ahead. Get ahead. Study in the Word. Get ahead. Type out those messages and things like that. Uh, hey, you don't have anything to do? And, and, and you're teaching a Sunday school class? Get on telephone, call, find out. Hey, you got a, you're teaching fifth grade. Do you have a friend in your neighborhood that's in fifth grade? You can go out there and visit that one for your Sunday school class. In other words, you can get busy. You've got time in prayer. You, the bus ministry can use you, whatever. You say, man, I got all this time. Then get busy for the Lord and don't sit around and find fault with everybody else. You see, because then these things are not added to your life. Now, we have an example for us in the best person that could have ever given us an example, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 10, it says, The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Basically, he's just saying, look, when Jesus died on the cross, that was for all sin, for all time. Not for our sin only, but for the sin of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2 says. Okay, so he died for the sins of the whole world. That's the Bible. That's the Bible. Now, Jesus did for that, and he told his disciples to take the gospel to the whole world. The whole world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Take the word of God to them. Take the way of salvation to them. Take this gospel to them. He told them. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Again, makes bare his holy arm. The arm of the Lord is revealed. What in the world does he mean by that. It pictures a man rolling up his sleeve and he's getting ready to do some heavy, hard work. Maybe he's got to lift some weight. Maybe he's got to shovel. Maybe he's got to do something. But boy, it is extremely heavy, hard, and it's just not something that you do in a suit. I became the object of laughter and made fun of in my first church because we had volunteers that mowed the yard, small church starting out. One had uh, mowed the yard and probably didn't take their medicine that day because there were blotches here and blotches there. I'm in a three-piece suit. You know, back then they wore a vest. I'm in a three-piece suit. And I said, man, I'm just going to hit that little blotch over there. And so I got out there. I'm still in the three-piece suit. And I got that little blotch. Started to go back. And I look back. The blotch is lower than the other grass. 
Now I'm mowing the, I ended up mowing the whole front yard on a four-lane highway, people driving by, and there's a guy out there in the three-piece suit. I said, man, I got class. Okay. They said, idiot. Uh, but, um, but still, that wasn't rolling up the sleeve. That's just pushing a mower. So when he says bear the arm, he's talking about hard, heavy work. I mean, it is straining. It is hard. I find that interesting because in Psalms 33, 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Now think about that. When God created the heavenly earth, he spoke the worlds into existence. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. That's how powerful he is in his word. But my friend, when God became a man, when Jesus took on flesh, he was 100% God, but he was 100% man. And when he became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and all of our sin was placed upon his sinless body. And the Father looked down and saw my sin and your sin and all sin for all time placed upon his Son. And it did not change his attitude. For Isaiah chapter 53 says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It did not change his attitude at all. And he poured out wrath upon the human spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, man had crucified Jesus' body. And if you've watched movies, seen pictures, artist conceptions and things like that, they, they, they show a bloody hanging mess. You know what? We don't ever see Jesus in that part crying out. He saves a thief right beside him at the time. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's not, what man is doing is not bothering him. But the sky has turned dark, and then all of a sudden the Father takes over the crucifixion. And what's happening? Now upon his human spirit, God is pouring out his full wrath. You say, why is that? Because you and I were made in his image, and God is the spirit. It's not our bodies that were made in his image. These bodies are going to be done away with, and we're going to be given a new glorified body. That image. And he poured it out on him. And he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, in the wilderness when the devil was tempting him, angels came and ministered. In, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was praying, drops that were so thick they were as blood. His angels came and ministered to him. But now there's no grace or mercy in order for my sin and your sin to be fully paid. And the Father poured out the wrath on him. Let me close with this illustration. We'll get into these other things next Sunday about what to add to your life. Many years ago, there was a train track. And the train track would 
go over the water. And there was a, a lot of times they just kept it up so the boats could, when there were a lot of boats coming in and out, they'd keep it up so that they would not, uh, so that they could just go through without any problem. But when he put it down, that stopped all the boat traffic. That stopped everything because, down there because those boats had to just circle around or take anchor till that thing closed back down. One day, this man who had the responsibility, he'd hit the levers and all that and make those things happen. One day, that was, that was going on, and uh, he had taken his little boy to work with him. And they'd go out and they'd sit outside and just watch the boats and things like that. But then he'd check his watch, and every time, once time going, he tells the little boy, come on in with me. And one of the times, the little boy said, Daddy, can I sit here? Sure, sure, son, you can sit there. And just make sure you stay there. Now, don't, don't get up. Stay there, I, and I'll go in and do this. And so he went in, and he started hitting the levers, and the bridge started to go up. And it's, it's starting to go up. He looked outside. He didn't see his little boy. He ran outside. He started looking around, and he looked down there to the levers. There was his little boy crying. And he could have walked back in and hit one lever and stopped it. Stopped it right then. Just like Jesus Christ on the cross could have just spoken the word and come off that cross. He could have stopped it right then. But he realized if he does that, there's going to be an entire passenger train filled with people that are all going to perish. He hits the lever with tears streaming down his eyes. That's his, that's his son. The train comes by. As he's crying there, he looks at the train, the people coming by. They don't know what's happened. It's just the normal thing. And he sees people having conversation as that train slowly goes over the track. They're having conversation and they're, some are laughing and some are up walking around. And they don't know that he just gave his son for their life. There's a world out there today that doesn't know that Jesus Christ was given for their eternal soul. And he has charged you and I with the responsibility to tell. How ashamed will we be if we won't even invite someone to church to hear the gospel? You see, my friend, God's attitude about sin did not change when it was his only begotten son. He too could have pulled the lever and stopped it. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave his life for you and me. He died on the cross bearing every sin I ever have or ever will commit at that time. When he was dying for me, I wasn't alive, but even looking ahead to 2,000 years, my sin would be upon him. And Jesus paid it all.
for all of us. Well, they buried him that day. Put Roman soldiers in to guard the tomb. But Jesus Christ arose. Victorious over hell and the grave. Now the Bible says that only he in Revelation 1.18 has the keys of hell and of death. Therefore, he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And the way you come to him is this, believing that Jesus Christ was God come in the flesh. And he came for you. He was without sin, and he died on the cross for every sin you ever have or ever will commit. Believing he did that for you. He died for you and was buried and bodily rose from the dead. Instead of your way, now you turn to him. And you give your life to Jesus Christ. Now your life is his. He's Lord instead of you being Lord. And his promise is everlasting life. And my friend, I can tell you, God does not lie. And so, just like that man pulling the lever, That was his little boy. And he didn't know the people on the train. He didn't know the people on the train. But duty demanded it. God knows us. He knows the thoughts of our heart. He knows our actions. He knows that we are so undeserving of eternal life. God loves us, but he doesn't always like us, does he? Because I don't like anybody that's trying to hurt me. I can still love them, but I don't have to like them. I don't have to like what they're doing. What we have done to God through our own lives, every one of us. He knew you. He knew me. And he still pushed the lever, and his son died for us. Therefore, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, just like we are, Christ died for us. And your only hope of eternal life is to come to Jesus Christ. He will in no wise cast you out, but you must come to him. Then you'll know that you are accepted before the Father in Him, not your works, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saves us. But you must come to Him. Won't you come to Him today? Let's bow our heads.